0: All right, if you would please open the Bible to um, Matthew chapter 7 on page 812. We're just going to be looking at two verses, but uh, they are very important verses and form uh, a kind of significant transition point uh, as Matthew tells the story of the Lord Jesus' life and ministry. So, it'd be very helpful if you have the Bible open in front of you uh, because we're going to be looking not just at these two verses, but up and down the pages as we pull together some themes that have been developed all the way through the Sermon on the Mount. So, Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 through 29 on page 812. If you would please stand. This is. Matthew writing by the power of the Holy Spirit, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, and not as their scribes. The word of the Lord. Be to God. That's our sermon opening sermon prayer, I'm actually going to pray some words we just sang because they really, I think, sum up exactly what I think we should be praying for as we look at this passage this morning. This is uh, from the, the hymn we sang, Speak, O Lord, the second stanza. Let me pray. Teach us, Lord, full obedience, holy reverence, and true humility. Test our thoughts and our attitudes in the radiance of your purity. Cause our faith to rise. Cause our eyes to see your majestic love and your authority. Words of power that can never fail. Let their truth prevail over unbelief. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Thank you again, Nick, for uh, choosing a hymn we can literally pray as we open the Bible. That's uh, that's brilliant. Thank you. I've uh, titled this morning's sermon, The Lord's Sermon. Uh, we all know the Lord's Prayer. It's actually part of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it's probably the most famous part of the Sermon on the Mount in terms of people knowing the words, it's back in chapter 6 verses 9 to 13. Uh, We say it every Sunday, actually we pray it every Sunday, and we did it just a few minutes ago. We we prayed together the prayer that Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 6. Well, this morning I'd like for us to back up for a moment and view this whole section, chapters 5 through 7, and think of it, We have the Lord's Prayer. I'd like for you to think of this as the Lord's Sermon. The Lord's Sermon. We all know what a sermon is. Will and I were talking about the difference between a sermon and and a a class, a teaching. Uh, They have very similar uh, content. They have very similar hopes. But there are some differences. And one of the differences is a sermon has to have some kind of application. It can't be merely a lecture about an esoteric, topic although some sermons do that Uh, but it's actually got to have a a point to it that's a thing that a sermon does it's supposed to make a point that has application in our lives and I want to suggest to you that Matthew chapter 5 through verse uh, chapter 5 verse 1 through chapter 7 verse uh, 29 this is the Lord's sermon and it has a point it has an application Actually, lots of applications, but one in particular. So this I'm going to call the Lord's Sermon. And like all good sermons, Jesus has several points. Uh, In fact, I've pulled out four. You might be able to spot some more, but I'm going to make these four points about the Lord's Sermon. First, it's a call to humility. Secondly, it's a call to obedience. Third, it's a call to the Father. And fourthly, it is a call to decision. Let's think about this call to humility. You know, perhaps the most striking thing about the Lord's sermon, as we have it recorded in Matthew's gospel, is where it begins, literally where it begins. It begins, well, look at it. Flip back to Matthew chapter 5, and let's see where it begins. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. It says, Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So the picture is the, Jesus seated with his disciples immediately around him. And then this huge gathering, these crowds that uh, Matthew mentions. And uh, they're all seated there around as Jesus teaches. Verse 2, Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In Jesus' life of preaching and teaching, that was the first sentence of his first recorded sermon. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's where Jesus began his teaching. That's where he began what he wanted his disciples to know as it's recorded here, and what he wanted the crowds to know as it's recorded here. He wanted them to know that the kingdom of heaven was grounded in this humility, this poverty of spirit. In fact, he says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that what Jesus came preaching? If you look back a a page to uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17 in Matthew's summary, of Jesus's preaching that's what Jesus came preaching was repentance and the kingdom of heaven and so in the verse first, first sentence of his first recorded sermon that's where he begins that's the summary of it in many ways the repentance the call to repentance and the the uh, kingdom uh, of heaven and here that's where he begins this great sermon this is Jesus is preaching and teaching and how it begins. It begins with a call to humility. And brothers and sisters, that is where Christian discipleship necessarily begins. You know, in many, many ways, everybody's interaction with the gospel looks a little different. Uh, some people come to Christ in one way. Others come to Christ in a different way in terms of how experientially we come to the place Where we are humbled before Him. There there is no proud way of getting to Jesus. There's only the humble way. And it may be experienced slightly differently in our lives. But it's always characterized by this awareness of poverty. This awareness of how much we need Him. Sometimes life has to break us down. Sometimes like Job. We have to experience hardship. And through that hardship, we learn what it is to be humbled. Well, that's where Jesus begins his sermon. And brothers and sisters, that's where the Christian life begins. It begins with humility. That's point one. And he develops that all the way through the Beatitudes. He talks about meekness, being among those who mourn, those who hunger and thirst, That's where he begins his sermon, a call to humility. Second point, a call to obedience. If you look in uh, chapter 5, verse 13, you'll see that Jesus turns immediately from this call to humility to a description of what the humbled servant will be like. Uh, it's It's a life of obedience beginning with mission. Interestingly, he begins with mission. He says in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. And he says in verse 14, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill. The call of Christ through humility is to be His representative, to be the demonstration of His work in our life and in our lives together. That witness, that mission, which Jesus came into the world to do, Christ makes it clear at the beginning of his sermon that that mission is being entrusted now to you and me. Now, that in itself is humbling, if you ask me. Uh, and just a moment ago, we were praying for uh, a natural shyness. Uh, uh, it, sometimes it's a shyness. Sometimes it's just our, our own unwillingness to be vulnerable, our own unwillingness to acknowledge Christ and Uh, inconvenient situations but jesus actually calls us to be salt to be light in the world to be his representatives to proclaim the message that's been entrusted to us and we do it in all kinds of ways but it will involve obedience it will involve our willingness to do what he says we actually are that's the second point of his sermon a call to obedience and he extends beyond mission and he talks about how that mission will look in our lives and he he talks about the deepening and expanding of God's holy law he overturns the scribes and the the other teachers who false teachers in many cases who had domesticated God's call to holiness they turns turned God's all-encompassing call to holiness that had been turned into a few little do's and don'ts. And all too often, we're inclined that way. We want to turn God's all-inclusive call to holiness into just a few little do's and don'ts. Don't do this and be sure to do this. And we begin to think that that's what the law is about. That's what obedience to the Gospel is about. And Jesus underscores over and over again in saying no. The call to... Not murder is actually according to Jesus as He expands and, and applies the Ten Commandments, the, the call to not murder actually includes don't be angry at your brother or sister. He, he makes it plain that the, the, the commandment you shall not commit adultery, He expands that and, and he, he teaches us that, that actually our whole life can be caught up in that sinful way of rebelling against the Lord. He makes it plain. You have heard that it was said. He says that several times as he describes the call to obedience. He says, you've heard it said. And he quotes either the law or some rule of the Pharisees. And he says, but I say. He expands it and he deepens it over and over again. And he makes it plain that God's call to holiness will touch every single area of our life. It will continue to humble us. It will make us continue to turn in humility to ask for God's forgiveness. It is not for nothing that every single time we gather as a community, we have a confession of sin. You know why? Because we always need to confess our sin. Since last Sunday, when we get together again, It may seem tedious. It may seem, are we doing this again? Yes, we're doing this again. Because we did all those things again. We had all those thoughts again. We said all those things again. We rebelled in our spirits again and again. And so, yes, when we're here together, we remind each other, we exhort each other to repent and to confess our sins. Call to humility. Call to obedience. Third point. Call to God as Father. i said several times as we've made our way through the Sermon on the Mount, how, in my opinion, central this is to the Sermon on the Mount. How central it is to the Lord's Sermon. This call to God as Father. Uh, The word Father shows up actually for the first time in chapter 5, verse 9. Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. It's the first time this relationship is alluded to. Uh, And then if you look down at chapter 5, verse 16, you'll see that it's actually at the conclusion of Jesus' call to obedience, to mission, where in verse uh, 16 He says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and do what? Give glory to you? No. Give glory to the church? No. Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It's the first time Jesus has taken this idea of fatherhood, sonship, and applied it to us. And He's over and over again makes reference to the Father. He makes reference to how central this understanding of God is you flip back to chapter 3 verse 17 you'll see where it's first applied to Jesus Uh, there's some references in the story of Jesus's birth that hinted this that alluded this but in chapter 3 verse 17 Matthew quoting a scene he did not witness in person probably makes it very plain behold a voice from heaven says this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. You see what Jesus is doing? He is inviting you and me. He is calling you and me to share a relationship with God which only He by rights has. The text of Matthew has already made it plain that Jesus has this unique relationship. Angels announce His birth. But here in chapter 3 verse 17 a voice from heaven says, this is My Son, My beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And so Jesus calls you and me, the likes of you and me, with our broken sinful behaviors, our broken sinful motives, and our broken sinful attitudes of heart. He invites and calls the likes of you and me to come to God as Father. As Father. We've become so accustomed to that idea, it's hard to imagine how radical it was, how unimaginable it was to the people who were there as Jesus preached this sermon the first time. He was using a way of thinking of God which had never been articulated among the Jewish people over millennia. They had many names for God. They had many ways of thinking of God. But the idea of of God the Father expressed in that simple way was unimaginable to them. And yet that's what Jesus calls His disciples to again and again. It simply cannot be overstated how significant it is that Jesus taught His disciples to understand and envision and relate to God as our Father. A Father we share together. Our Father between us. And our Father with Jesus. He's our Father because He's our Father. With Christ. Through Christ. And He calls His disciples to God as Father. To pray to God in exactly those terms, to, to call out to the King of the universe, the judge of the nations, the sovereign sustainer of all things, to call out to him, to pray to him in exactly those terms, our Father. And then he goes on to say that in we worship in our fasting, in our giving, in our facing hardships, that we're to do it all in light of this central defining relationship. Indeed, to process everything that we go through, everything we say, everything we long for, to process it through this most precious and important truth that in Jesus Christ, the King of the universe is our Father. And so, that should characterize everything we do. It will characterize our prayers. We'll approach him not as a cold, distant, impersonal deity detached from us, but as a loving, perfect, faithful father. I'll quote J.I. Packer one more time, I'll paraphrase him. He said, What you make of that truth will make it plain how much you understand the gospel. Because having God as our Father is at the heart of everything Jesus teaches us. It's His relationship that we share through Him. The last point in Jesus' sermon, and we've been seeing this over the last couple of weeks as we've been looking at chapter 7, We've had a call to humility, a call to obedience, a call to God as Father. Fourth point, a call to decision. He doesn't use the word decision, but uh, it's here. Uh, immediately before the Lord's sermon, we see Jesus calling his disciples in chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. You can look back later if you want to, and you'll see there, just before the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is calling his disciples To follow Him. To make a decision. To leave what they were doing and to follow Jesus. Well, D.A. Carson, who's one of my favorite commentators on the Sermon on the Mount, wrote wrote this. He says, Jesus concludes the Sermon on the Mount with a number of paired alternatives. Think back over the last few weeks. A number of paired alternatives. He speaks of two paths In chapter 7, verse 13. He talks of two trees. In chapter 7, verses 15 to 20. He talks of two claims. Chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. He talks of two houses. Chapter 7, verses 24 to 27. Carson continues, By these pairs, Jesus insists that there are two ways and only two ways. And these final Verses of the Sermon on the Mount demand decision and commitment of the type that beseeches God for mercy and pardon and hails a new intentional relationship. Two ways, only two ways, and I think Carson's exactly right about this. Jesus will go on to say as much. There are two ways, and only two ways. He doesn't conclude his sermon with lofty thoughts of human goodness sprinkled liberally with naive hope about the inevitability of human progress. Every once in a while, someone will wave the the text of the Sermon on the Mount in in such a way that this is uh, a a way of life independent of God, independent of Jesus, just sort of a moral guide, and that's sometimes the way we're told to regard the Sermon on the Mount. Well, uh, D.A. Carson makes the point, and I could not agree more, That you can't understand the Lord's Sermon that way. It's not simply a a lofty statement of human goodness and goals. Two ways. Only one of two ways. One way ends in life, in good fruit, entrance into the kingdom of heaven, and stability. Even when the winds come. The other way ends in destruction, bad fruit and fire, exclusion from the kingdom along with other evildoers, and what Jesus calls ruin, destruction. Those are the only two ways. And so at the end of the sermon, in verse 27, Jesus leaves his hearers with this decision. I mean, can there be a more important point of decision, a more important point of application than to say to a group of people, decide. Come, follow me. Receive these blessings that are yours entirely through my grace and mercy. Or go your own way, the the broad way, the easy way that leads to destruction that's how Jesus concludes his sermon now part of me wants to say that's the way I should conclude this morning because the decision they faced brothers and sisters is a decision you and I face because there are still only two ways the world tells us all kinds of lies there are all kinds of false prophets that will give us all kinds of teaching prophetic words whatever you want to call it that that denies what Jesus is saying in his sermon. But the choice, the decision is exactly the same today as it was when Jesus first preached his sermon 2,000 years ago. Decide. And so I, I ask each one of you, decide. Decide. Put your hope, your trust in Christ. Turn to him. Follow him. Repent, which basically means to turn and follow him, face him. It does not mean sinless perfection immediately. But it will lead us in our relationship with him to grow in holiness, real holiness. As his spirit applies his teaching to our hearts and conforms messed up sinners like you and me to make us more like Jesus. So that's the Lord's sermon. I want to turn with you for just a moment to think about the Lord's hearers. Because remember, this was a real sermon preached in front of real people. His disciples who were gathered around Him. And just beyond them, there was this crowd. It says plural, crowds. It was a big group of people. They were all listening. They were all hearing As Jesus preached his sermon. So that's the background to the last two verses of the chapter. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. The crowds. Uh, Matthew likes that word a lot. He uses it a lot to describe what is happening in uh, his gospel. Um, The crowds, plural. Uh, In fact, if you back up to chapter 5, verse 1, once again, you'll see it says, Seeing the crowds. Jesus saw the crowds. He preached this sermon, apparently in response to the crowds. And then look over at chapter 8, verse 1. The very next page. The very next verse. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. He preached because of them. He preached to them. And he continues to live his life in front of them as they followed him. These hearers, these first hearers of Jesus, it says... That when he finished preaching, they were astonished at his teaching. Um, the the Greek word uh, is a very rich word. It, it means like dumbfounded. They they were speechless. Uh, there, in some contexts, it's almost described as panicked. Matthew uses the same word. Three times. The same Greek word three times. uh, All, interestingly enough, related to Jesus' teaching. Uh, He uses it in chapter 13, verse 54 to describe uh, the hearers in His hometown when He went to preach in Nazareth. They were astonished at His teaching. Chapter 19, verse 25. He was describing how you cannot be saved by being wealthy or by having all these material blessings. And, And He said you could only be saved uh, uh, it's easier, he said, for a, uh, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to be saved. And, and it said the disciples were astonished. And Matthew uses it one last time in chapter 22, verse 33, towards the end of the Gospel, where the crowds were responding and the disciples were responding to His teaching on the resurrection. His teaching on the resurrection. Dumbfounded them. Over and over again, when Jesus taught, the reaction noted by Matthew was this astonishment, this dumbfoundedness, speechlessness. Now you contrast that with something everyone in the crowd knew a lot about. You see, in Jesus' day, the scribes and the teachers in the synagogues, the rabbis and, and all the teachers of the law, uh, they taught by quoting commentators, and famous teachers of the past. Um, It wasn't a bad thing, but it looked really thin compared to Jesus as he taught. Because he taught as one who had authority. He he actually possessed the authority. The uh, scribes would quote authorities. Authorities plural they would quote experts and a rabbinical debate would be competing commentators and competing statements from established experts but when jesus taught and you you see this in his sermon he didn't do that he actually speaks as one who has in himself authority I'm we'll be a little bit like a scribe. I'm going to quote a, uh, an expert from the past. Here's what John Calvin had to say about this passage. This very passage in his commentary on Matthew. John Calvin says, All were seized with astonishment because a strange, indescribable, and unaccustomed majesty drew to him the mind of men, strange, indescribable, unaccu- unaccustomed majesty. Now they couldn't have probably articulated it as beautifully as John Calvin, but they demonstrated. They were dumbfounded by what he had to say, and according to chapter eight, verse one, they followed him. They followed him. They. They heard what he had to say. They had this sense of the uniqueness of him as preacher and his sermon and they followed him. And brothers and sisters, many, many, many have experienced the same thing right down through the ages. If you meet Jesus as he's presented in the Bible, If you engage with Jesus, if you listen to his teaching, well, at the very least, you will be astonished. To this day, millennia later, Jesus remains the central articulator of the gospel he came to preach. There have been countless others who seek to proclaim his message. But He is central to it. And He remains the great teacher. Right down to today. And if you make your decision today, make it in light not of me or us or this thing we call the church, which has good days and bad days, good centuries and bad centuries. Make, it, make your decision in light of the preacher, Jesus Christ. The ultimate preacher. The ultimate prophet. The false prophets are all around us. There's one true prophet around whom all the little prophets point to Jesus Christ. So, the the Lord's sermon, the Lord's hearers, and finally, the Lord. Because He really is the center of all this. And Matthew's actually telling us that. He doesn't... Always put it in black and white. Sometimes you have to read and follow his logic. But there there was much about Jesus' teaching that was astonishing in terms of its content and the articulateness and the unique skill of the preacher. But there is something else about the Lord's sermon that astonished and amazed its hearers then and now. And it was and is the Lord Himself. Flip again over to chapter 8. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. You saw that. Behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, we hear this expression many times in church life. We've talked about the Lord's sermon. We've talked about the Lord's prayer. But did you know this is the first time that anybody other than angels and prophets have used the word Lord? It comes immediately following the Lord's sermon. Because it was then, in God's mysterious providence, in his sermon, in his divine authoritative preaching, that people like this leper recognized something about the preacher. That he was more than a great rabbi, that he was more than someone with the gift of gab, that he was more than someone who could tell amusing stories. This leper was the first of many who will recognize that this great teacher is the Lord himself. Now the word Lord is kind of lost on us. But let me tell you, it had extreme significance in first century Judea. It was an extremely significant thing for this leper to say. Now, uh, I'll have to get my friend Brian Ray to confirm this for me or maybe Hayden, who are both taking Hebrew. I haven't gotten around to Hebrew yet. I took it 30 years ago. But the Jewish people would not say God's name. They couldn't say it. In fact, when they'd come to it in the Bible, as it often did, YHWH were the four Hebrew letters transliterated to English. They didn't have the markings in ancient Hebrew. When they got around to putting the mark, the uh, markings, the uh, uh, vowels, uh, they didn't put what they thought the vowels were. They put the vowels for the Hebrew word Adonai, which means Lord. And the reason they put the the markings for the Hebrew word Adonai was to remind them when they came to that word not to dare to say YHWH, But to say instead, when they came to that word, whenever they were reading the Bible, whenever they were reading the prophets, the Psalms, when they came to that word in Hebrew, they would translate it Adonai, which is Lord. They translated that word Lord. And so when this leper, this nameless leper, calls out to Jesus in his brokenness, in his uncleanness, No good Jew could talk to him. No good Jew could touch him or interact with him. But when this nameless leper in his desperate need saw Jesus, he called out to him, the very first person recorded in Matthew's gospel, apart from angels and prophets. He saw him and he said, Lord, can you make me clean? Now, I'm not saying that Leper had a full Trinitarian theology. I think he was at the very beginning of understanding what Matthew is painstakingly explaining to us. That in Jesus' authoritative teaching, unique at his time, unique in all times, we get a glimpse of the God of the Old Testament The God of the Bible. And this leper in his brokenness calls out to him. And brothers and sisters, you and I today. In our moments of decision, in our moments of need, in our moments when we are so aware of how much we need God's help. then we look to Jesus Christ the Lord. And ask him for mercy. And cleansing and forgiveness, and life. So, Matthew, inspired by the Spirit, turns immediately from the Lord's sermon to the Lord's life. What we're going to see over the next several weeks and months is Jesus walking the dusty roads of Judea and Palestine, Galilee living his life, teaching and preaching and living his life, bringing healing and mercy and the promise of never-ending life in the resurrection from the dead. And this Pentecost, we will be going with him step by step, learning from him, calling out to him, loving and trusting his father as he has taught us because he is the Lord.